Um, I'd like to, I'm happy to introduce the next speaker whom I work with, uh, Dr. Jeremy Ouse. Uh, he is a private practice Mohs surgeon and dermatologist in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, he completed his Mohs fellowship and dermatology residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He enjoys all aspects of dermatology, but focuses more on per procedural dermatology, ranging from Mohs surgery to complex reconstruction. He grew up in Midwest and lives amongst the vast fields of corn and wheat with his wife, two daughters, four dogs, and two cats. Please welcome Dr. Yaus. All right. Um, my name is Jeremy Yaus. Uh, thanks, Gina, for inviting me to talk here today. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Hopefully, um, this talk goes well and uh, you guys learn a few things that are useful and practical. Um, the name of the talk, Dermatology Procedures, a smorgasbord of surgical tidbits and updates. Um, where's my thing? Here, there we go. Uh, my important disclaimer, I have no conflicts of interest as far as financial interest or anything like that. Um, we'll talk about some off-label use of medications and different procedures. Um, so it's a smorgasbord. I really enjoy eating. And I, when I was preparing this talk, I just started my... Um, little low-carb diet, so I was really craving food for some reason. So this was the uh, theme that tied everything together. It's a 10-course meal of surgical updates. We'll try and keep it uh, short courses um, because that's the way I think. I'm, uh, I'm in dermatology because my attention span doesn't last more than about five minutes. Um, so we'll try and keep it quick and um, simple and useful. Um, and also, it was the 100th anniversary of the Titanic, so this was the actual uh, menu from the Titanic, and uh, hopefully this talk ends up a little bit better than the Titanic, uh, but we'll see. Um, so uh, just a quick overview of things. Um, setting the table, we'll talk about tray setup, hors d'oeuvres, um, shape biopsy techniques, you can see the rest of it there, but my goal is to keep it uh, very useful rather than getting into the intricacies of, uh, you know, molecular signals involved in you know, biologics. Um, I, th I hope these will be better for you. So setting the table. Um, you know, in order to eat a good meal, you have to have, uh, have your utensils out and everything set up the correct way. So a, a systematic and practical way of uh, getting your uh, tray organized will save uh, you time and energy and uh, allow you to focus on more important parts of the procedure like, you know, that bleeder that's pumping and hitting the wall rather than um, looking for your hemostat. So. Um, keeping things uh, systematic is important. Know where your instruments are and keep them the same. I, uh, I'll walk you through what I do. It's not uh, an arbitrary rule what's right or wrong, but you gotta find something that works for you. And um, keep everything in its right place. Um, the way I organize it is basically in the order that I go. I keep two rows of instruments, you know, from beginning to end, left to right. And then I always have a little bit of extra lidocaine in a cup in case um, we didn't get the person completely numb, and you know we always have a call light. It's never uh, never a bad idea to have some backup and have that a medical assistant or rotating nurse when you can flip a light, stay sterile, keep everything moving, and then they can come in and drop another hemostat that you dropped on the floor. Um, and the other thing that I learned in residency, you know, as you get in there and you're removing a small little cyst on the forehead, and then quickly you realize that that cyst hole is filling up with blood faster than you can do anything and 
pretty soon you're uh, dripping in sweat more than the patient's dripping in blood, is that there's nothing wrong with taking a step back, telling the nurse or the patient that I'm going to have the nurse hold a little bit of pressure there for a few minutes. I'm going to go step out and uh, check on a couple other things that I need to check on. I'll be back in a few. Half the time the blood will be gone by the time you get back. The other half the time you'll be calm, cool, and collected, or you'll be able to go get your doc and have them come in and tie something off if you need it. Or, you know, at least you'll be relaxed again. Sometimes just uh, a little bit of pressure and having an out and having that verbiage um, set up is, is important. So holding pressure. Oh yeah, the, another important thing, which you guys are well aware of, but this uh, whoops moments, um, you know, as a first year resident or working with a new medical assistant or a nurse, I mean, every little thing, whether, you know, their uh, hair falls on and they say, falls onto the tray and, and they say whoops, the patient automatically assumes you just poked my eyeball and I'm going to be blind. I mean, it, they expect the worst. You've got to really pay attention to details and every little thing that comes out of your mouth uh, will, uh, will make the patient worried. So I'm real careful to set up kind of a silent communication system with my nurses and staff. Um, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Cut, cut. So, um, you know, blot. And I'm real careful not to say any whoops or I say a lot of very good or excellent or perfect, a lot of that kind of cheer, cheerlead, uh, cheerlead during the procedure a little bit. Those are little things that will affect patient satisfaction just as much. I mean, whether you place the stitch perfectly or not, they probably won't know. You might know. But uh, boy, if, if you say whoops uh, a couple times during a procedure, they're going to quickly lose confidence. Even a perfect closure to them is going to sound uh, you know, a little funny. Keep that in mind. All right, on to the uh, first course, hors d'oeuvres. So um, shave biopsy options. This is something that's come up um, in the practice that I joined. There was basically one doc and, and two PAs, and uh, they had pretty much learned the 15-blade scalpel technique for shave biopsies. And when I come in to do my shave biopsy the first time, the stuff's set up, and I'm like, well, where's, the, where's my blade? And I'm like, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> I've, I've never done the shave biopsy with a scalpel blade. So I, I find uh, that for me, at least, this is the way I learned it in residency, the shave biopsy with a flexible little Wilkinson sword, a double-edged razor blade, is by far more uh, e easy for me to use and uh, allows me more control to kind of control depth and uh, shaves. I think it works very well. I think it's faster and there's less bleeding when you use aluminum chloride. They hadn't used that before and works really well for raised lesions. That's my typical shave biopsy setup. I think it's so simple, easy, and I love it. Um, you can see we're going to do a shave biopsy on the tip of the guy's nose there. You kind of can control the flexibility of the blade, control your angle for depth. Um, typically you're going to go very superficially, and you just want a little piece of it so you can get the diagnosis for that basal cell. And then a little bit of aluminum chloride, twist pressure, stops the bleeding, and uh, he's good to go. By the time you're in there, he's numb and it's set up, I think two minutes is probably enough time to do something like that. Um, if you haven't used one of those Wilkinson swords or a double-edged blade before, um, this is my Florida native that I trained on. Um, he had a lot of skin cancers that needed to biopsy. So, um, but it, it really gets the, uh, the handling down, which is another thing. If a patient sees you uh, fumbling with the instrument or you can't get the 15 blade on the scalpel holder, um, I mean, you know, their confidence in your abilities immediately is reduced by half, no matter how well you actually do the procedure. 
Um, so on to the second and third course. Instrument handling. This is uh, something that uh, is important to me. Uh, you know, I like my finger foods, but uh, you know, if you can't hold the fork, you can't um, you know, eat all the fancy foods. I uh, learned the hard way when I was starting off as a first year resident. And I trained at Mayo. I had all these famous you know, dermatologists that I'm working with. I was really nervous my first uh, year. And uh, you know, they, they, I knew all the appropriate things to do. I just couldn't get my hands to do what the surgeons wanted me to do. And they would say, just do it. You know? and, and they'd say, watch me do it. And I tried to do it like them. And it was finally a, a nurse that had been there for a long time that actually said, you know, you're holding your instrument wrong. And I had one finger in a little bit too far, and my thumb was in the wrong place, and I wasn't using my index finger the right way. And once she took me aside for 15 minutes and kind of walked me through that, it was so much easier. So, I mean, it's pretty basic and elementary, but man, it makes a huge difference. This is the foundation as far as whether you're going to move on to that next level as in scar uh, revision or, or whatever. You know, you got to set a good... Um, base up before you can move on to the important things. So scalpel, hold it like a pencil. The blade is perpendicular. If you start uh, angling your blade too much, beveling in or out, you've got an angled edge that's going to be really difficult to sew back together, especially if you do the same thing opposite. You're going to have a bigger scar. It's going to be widened. Your goal is basically to have that perpendicular perfect apposition of the wound. You can see what happens. You end up with a gap there, there, and either way, it's going to look worse when it um, finally heals up. You want perfect epithelial apposition, and the only way you can do that is to keep your blade perfectly perpendicular, no beveling. And there are certain situations where you might bevel a little bit, like on the scalp, if you don't want to transect hair follicles. But for the most part, for a straightforward excision, perfect um, perpendicular um, incisions. And the, the result, basically, the footprint is, should be a 3D Grand Canyon in an ellipse. Nice straight edges, nice flat bottom, everything the same depth. You don't want a rounded out canoe because when you start squeezing that together, you're going to end up with some bunching at the ends and have to work on your dog ears and everything else. If you really want nice scars, you've got to start with this. Um, so then the next thing, needle, needle driver and tissue scissors. Um, I'll show you a picture. Basically, I was putting my finger too far into that hole and it would handcuff me. I couldn't get that rotation and I couldn't throw a good deep stitch because it was too far in. Um, the other thing that I was doing, I wasn't using my pinky for proximal stabilization. Look at the difference when I hold my pointer out at shoulder, my pivot point is right here versus, well, I just had too much coffee, I guess, right there. So the proc or distal stabilization, use that pinky. I mean, you can do all kinds of stuff. If a patient starts feeling you move or your nurse feels you start shaking because you're holding your instrument here and using your shoulder as your primary point for movement, that's too much. Your primary point for movement should be your wrist. And using your pinky allows you to keep that uh, stable. Um, let's see, other thing, you can really control a lot of pressure with that and that will help you angle your blade up and down. So remember that picture, try and shoot for that. Um, it will help you uh, form a good base as far as using your scissors. The other thing I see beginners and sometimes intermediates do with uh, their scalpel is they start, or their uh, forceps, they start pinching too much or they hold it backwards. Light touch, use it as a hook as much as possible, don't pinch the tissue. Um, same thing, your positioning for your needle driver and your scissors is basically the same. Nice, light touch, um, just the tips of your fingers. Don't handcuff yourself by going into your second um, knuckle there. Uh, nice, light touch.
All right, on to the more uh, heavy uh, part of our meal here, the entrees uh, with uh, biopsies, shave, punches, excisions. We're gonna talk a little bit about what each of these actually is as it relates to coding, um, because uh, making sure you get your terminal terminology right here will, um, will save you um, time um, and help your reimbursement quite a bit, which um, you, know, you always wanna get paid for what you're actually doing and making sure your terminology is correct and you know which one is can really help that. Rather than, I, I wrote that down, I'm not gonna read that to you, but you can go back and look at it. The basics are um, here in this picture. With the, um, you know, you've got your basic lesion or rash or excision. The difference between a biopsy shave, a biopsy punch, you're going through the full dermis and epidermis, you guys know that. But the key thing to remember here is the biopsy versus an excision. Regardless of what you call it, a biopsy or an excision, you're gonna send pathology in. If your goal is to, to get some pathology for diagnosis and not remove the entire lesion, then it's a biopsy. If you're going through a partial thickness, then it's a shave. If you're going through the full thickness, it's a punch. Now, this is, gets to the point, biopsy versus removal. If you're removing something, then it's an excision in my mind. Um, whether it's a shave excision or a full thickness excision, this is um, important as well. Um, Regardless of, it, of you know, what, what you uh, remove, it's gonna go to pathology. Um, but the key is, are you removing the entire lesion? So intent, I think, is really the key here. If your intent is to remove the entire lesion, then you can start thinking about excisions. And that's where you talk about punch excisions, scalpel excisions, or shave removal, or tangential excisions. So shave removal versus um, an excision. So shave removal is synonymous with tangential shave excision. That's your typical shave um, biopsy is what you, most people would call it. But if you're just removing a, a portion of lesion, I would call it a shave biopsy. But if you're removing the entire lesion, which you got a little bit of margin on each side, this is your shave removal or tangential excision. This is your full thickness punch excision. And that's an excision code uh, versus a biopsy code, which helps you out quite a bit. So here's our little uh, interactive quick test. Um, your 50-year-old patient comes in for a new lesion on his temple. You evaluate it, and it measures four millimeters. It's concerning for a possible melanoma, so you make sure you get the entire thing out and do a six-millimeter punch biopsy to completely remove it and submit for pathology. Um, the defect is sutured with an interrupted 4-0 nylon. All of that's performed at the time of the visit. We won't go through coding for um, E&M sorts of things, but I'm not even gonna give you two minutes to do it. But is it a biopsy versus an excision? So a biopsy is a 11100 or an excision 11441, for that's a benign lesion, or a 11461. And if you don't know all these numbers, don't um, you know, feel bad, because I didn't know them when I started in practice. I, in residency, I had a coder that did everything for us, and I, I had to learn all this in the first you know, few weeks or months of practice. So, they did a removal of a four millimeter lesion with a six millimeter punch. So, you remove the entire lesion. Now, we went through the full thickness, so let's do the subcutaneous fat. That's an excisional biopsy. Um, so you did a six millimeter punch excision, is what I would call that. It's on the face, the so location matters, and the simple closure is included in the excision codes. Do you need a modifier? Yes. Uh, you know, you evaluate the lesion, so you get to charge for your visit code, and then you attach a 25 modifier because you did the procedure that's an identifiable separate procedure um, related to your evaluation that day. 
So should you build for the closure? No, for simple excisions, it includes the simple closure. You didn't put any buried stitches, you didn't do any undermining, it's a basic little 4-0 nylon. Is there a global period? That's where you, basically anything that the patient comes back for, say they have uh, a little bit of bleeding the next day, you know, you tell them to come back in. Do you charge them for that visit? No, um, it's included in the global period, um, so keep that in mind as well. Um, the ICD-9 code, this is where it gets a little tricky as well and, and brings up the point that the diagnosis does matter for excisions. If you talk about removing a benign lesion versus a malignant lesion, um, it makes a big difference. Um, reimbursement varies pretty greatly. So if you're um, not sure whether it's malignant or benign, then I would hold the, or hold the coding sheet back and submit it after uh, you get the diagnosis because you can bill for an excision of the malignant lesion. Even though it may need some further treatment, your intent was to remove the entire lesion. It's malignant, bill for malignant removal. And then when you have to remove it again to take margins, um, you can bill for it again. So excision codes, that, um, you know, as you've probably figured out, depends on several different things. Whether it's a shave removal, whether it's a full thickness removal, or in the size of the lesion, the size of the margins, the site, whether you're doing it on the face uh, versus the leg, and whether it's benign or malignant. This is your friend. This is my friend, anyway. Um, I use this every day. It's the cheat sheets um, that I borrowed from one of my other fellows and um, fellowship that we developed, and I think it just simplifies everything. So you've got it by trunk, by site, trunk, arms, legs, and then the size based on uh, that, and then shave, benign, or malignant. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. I included it because I think it's very helpful, and it summarizes basically everything we just talked about. Um, we already talked about that. Now, here's another area that often is confusing for people that are just new to coding. What do you uh, call the size and how does that relate to the um, you know, code? So this is important. Total excision size equals the greatest diameter of the lesion plus the narrowest margin. So in this area, it's uh, this length from here to here, your margin on each side. So for a 0.7 by 1.0 centimeter lesion removed with two millimeter margins, the excision size should be one plus 0.2 plus 0.2, so 1.4 centimeters. There's some more examples so you can test yourself and make sure that you got that um, concept down because uh, size uh, does matter. <laughs> uh, location also matters, um, especially uh, for excisions, whether it's you know, a, a low risk cosmetic site like the leg or the um, you know, back versus a high, high risk site um, face, uh, it makes a big difference. And then, um, as we talked about, benign or malignant. And I go through a few of the um, codes that I use commonly. Almost everything that I'm biopsying because I'm worried about malignancy, I will code it as a 2-3.8, send in the biopsy and the coding and be all done with it. If I'm relatively certain that it's a malignant and I remove the lesion entirely, I'll hold the coding back because it makes a difference as far as coding goes. If you build as a malignant removal, your reimbursement for that procedure goes up 50% even though you did the exact same thing. And another little update um, on your coding sheets too is the ICD-9 codes changed a little bit for some of your non-melanoma skin cancers. There's a fifth digit now. You can read all about that, but something to keep in mind. All right, that's the same. Oh, there, I gave an example. So for a relatively small lesion on the um, face that you removed with a punch biopsy, um, a malignant lesion pays 50% more. Same procedure. Another example that you can work through on your own. 
Um, okay, on to some uh, simpler, more practical stuff. Um, the double punch. Um, I did this uh, once when, when a visiting a nurse practitioner was here, and um, I had done, it was on the back, and I, this patient had a, you know, suspicious pigmented lesion. I buried the hub, but it didn't go all the way through, and I removed the lesion and dropped it in the bottle. And then I couldn't get the darn thing closed. This guy had a really thick fibrotic back, and I mean, I put a stitch in and hardly budged. And there was still a big base of tissue at the, at the, at the base of the uh, biopsy site. So I did that, buried it, sent that in. Then there was this big glob of dermis sitting there. So I just stuck the punch back in in the same hole, removed the thing. And she's like, you can do that? And I'm like, yeah, you can do that. I mean, it's not that hard. But she's like, oh, I've never done that. And she'd been in practice for, you know, 15 years. And I thought it was a little good little tip. It allows you to close it very easily. You've you got to be careful. If you're going that deep, you want to make sure you're on the back, which is where I use it the most often. But uh, you don't want to harm any deeper structures. And occasionally you'll do that to try and get it to close up. And you'll hit a little pumper. And then you're like, ah, why'd I do that? Uh, Next, uh, next course, roast squab. Anybody know what squab is? It's a, it's a baby pigeon, I think. Um, so that was on the course uh, for the Titanic. Um, so an intermediate layered uh, closure. Um, that, uh, there's the definition from the uh, CPT coding book. It's a layered closure, and I think this is probably what most of you are doing for you know, a standard excision on the back for an atypical mole or a cyst. Um, you're, uh, in closing up that subcutaneous tissue, um, even if it's relatively deep, getting close to the, the muscle, it's still an intermediate layered closure. Now, um, complex repairs, they can, uh, you know, they require a little bit more work. Um, I consider these kind of ones that require um, more extensive undermining. You're trying to do a really nice job and close somebody's cheek up, uh, or you're doing like an M plasty or an S plasty, you start making more than one line. I consider that a little bit more complex. Coating's different, but we're gonna stick to the intermediate layered closure because that's probably the most common one. Important things to include, um, you know, a description of the wound, basically. And then um, making sure you know the difference between excision size and repair length. This is another common pitfall um, that people get confused. So I think this is an important slide, keeping track of your excision size with your greatest lesion diameter plus narrowest margin equaling your total excision size versus on the right, you've got the repair length, so you can see where you took your burrows triangles out above and below, and then the ruler on the side measures your total um, repair length. That's really the important part, and this is the other cheat sheet that you've got for intermediate repair summaries based on site um, and size. Um, so that keeps things pretty straightforward. By far the most common thing that I end up building, a, building are the, the 12031 and the 12032, which are your standard small repairs for excision of most lesions on the trunk, arms, and legs. Uh, the other thing that to keep in mind, if I do a big six or eight millimeter punch biopsy for an atypical mole, I'll try and remove the entire mole rather than have them come back. If I do a little biopsy and it's involved on the margin, then they have to do two excisions. Just do a big six or eight millimeter punch biopsy. Bill for the excision, so you bill um, the uh, you know six millimeter, which is 11401 if it's a benign but atypical mole, and then do an intermediate layered closure. If it's an eight millimeter punch, there's no nothing wrong with putting a, a little buried 40 uh, vicryl in there, and then you bill a 12031. The stitches sometimes don't need any top stitches, so they save a trip coming back. You have a buried vicryl that dissolves on its own. Um, you know, it, it does a better job of holding the scar together. It doesn't pop right open as soon as you take that 4-0 nylon on the surface out. And then you get to bill for a, an intermediate layered closure too, so keep that in mind. Uh, I think patients like it because they don't have to come back for suture removal half the time. 
and I think it does a better job of closing things up. These are my two references as far as coding help goes, and I think are useful for anybody that um, wants to get into this a little bit more. Um, all right, on to the next course here. Um, okay, this is, a common, this is a common clinical scenario that we run, run into a lot. Uh, uh, a uh, pathology result that you get back that doesn't match your clinical impression. So you see a 65-year-old guy with lots and lots of skin cancers. He has a rough, firm, eroded, tender, one-centimeter keratinized papule on his right um, helical rim. You're clinically suspicious for an SCC. You uh, do a little shade biopsy because he's anticoagulated and on Plavix and aspirin, and you didn't want him to bleed all over the place. You didn't want your doc to get phone calls all night, and I thank you for that. Um, so you uh, get the pathology back, and it shows an actinic keratosis extending to one margin. So what do you do? You bring him back for cryo? Do you have him come back in three or four months? Do you send him for Mohs? Do you give him a Miquimod? Discuss with your supervising physician, rebiopsy the following week? I mean, I think most, some of those answers could all be right. Um, but here's what I typically would recommend. Given your high clinical suspicion, I think you gotta bring him back or, um, and double check. You know, you don't want to let a squame on the ear go for that long. They're a little bit higher risk, higher risk for metastasis, and you can't let those go for too long. So I think bringing back and repeat biopsy is always a good answer. Um, if you have a good relationship with your Mohs surgeon and you're highly confident that it's a skin cancer, just send them to Mohs. I can always do a frozen biopsy that day, and, um, you know, you save the patient a trip back in. If you start sending me a bunch of them that aren't skin cancers, then I'm going to start saying something. Um, but uh, you know, if you if you've got a good track record and you're pretty confident, then go for it. And you know, if you've got a good relationship, I don't think they'll mind at all. It's asked the first time. Um, but basically, I mean, I've seen this happen even at Mayo, uh, where you've got great dermatopathologists. Occasionally, they'll see something under the microscope or section through the block and not see the lentigo malignant that I was worried about and they'll see actinic keratosis and not do a stain. I was, you know, suspicious and I said, you know, can you cut through the rest of the block or something? Because uh, if you're really concerned, don't be afraid to speak up. All right, foie gras, which is fatty goose liver, I think, right? Um, is this wound infected? Um, you know, that can be challenging sometimes. You don't always see the classic uh, signs of a wound infection, redness, swelling, pain, discharge. They're not always there. And if some of, them none, some of the times none of them are there, especially in your transplant population that are immunosuppressed, they're not going to react uh, to infections like most people, and that inflammatory process isn't going to be quite as obvious. Um, and normal healing wounds can look pretty uh, inflamed sometimes, especially if there's a little contact dermatitis from some neosporin. Um, so, why worry about this? Well, I mean, obviously, you worry about uh, risk for sepsis, but it can ruin a perfectly um, good closure and lead to some pretty horrible scarring if you let it go and uh, really prolong their healing time, leave you with a big open wound for a while. Now, do you treat everybody with antibiotics? No, don't do that. You know, of course, you got to worry about the side effects like uh, C. diff colitis and Stevens-Johnson and other allergic reactions, but I think more often than not, people get a little nausea and say, I'm allergic to that, and then you, you know, pretty soon they've got a list of five antibiotics on their, on their chart, and then they, they kind of shoot themselves in the foot a little bit. So here's my advice. When in doubt, get a bacterial culture swab out. 
It's so fast, simple, and easy to do, and sometimes wounds that I don't think are infected grow tons of staph, and other times I don't get anything back. But patients like it because you get some empiric evidence back. I like it because when I see the patient back, because they're coming back to get checked and make sure this is okay, I have a result to go over and, and I know what antibiotic it's sensitive to, or I can say, you know, I don't see anything growing here, we're gonna take you off antibiotics completely. It always helps, and that's one of my biggest uh, annoyances with some of the primary docs that send me patients with an infected abscess or something. They didn't take a culture. It doesn't help me one bit. I don't know what uh, antibiotic to do if, you know, it's all kind of shooting in the dark a little bit. Um, the other thing I would say is be careful of is when you're on the ear. Sometimes you can get a little cartilage and, and infection and, and uh, chondritis and you really got to worry more about gram-negative infections there. So pseudomonas coverage is important. Usually you're going to use some sort of fluoroquinolone. A lot of times if it's a, you know, an old crusty guy that has sebderm and hasn't cleaned behind his ears in 10 years um, and I'm doing a little Mohs layer on him, I'll uh, give him some pro, um, prophylactic Cipro. So this is one of my friends uh, from residency and she did a nice study on antibiotic prophylaxis and derm surgery. This is a lot of information and I think probably more boring and too much to discuss completely, but I included a lot of it in there. It's a nice algorithmic approach to who needs antibiotics and when, and I think it's an important article in the past five years that you guys should know about. Um, it didn't show up very well, but basically you divide it into high risk for infection or not. A lot of that has to do with the patient, and a lot of it has to do with the site of the um, procedure. In areas that are prone to infection, you know, mucosal surfaces um, on the lips or lower extremities, and then if they have a history of a recent joint replacement or an infected site, really are kind of the key things. But it walks you through the basics of when to treat and when not to treat. Okay. All right, we're getting close to being done here. This is uh, an area that is uh, important, and uh, I'm sure you guys run into this all the time. You've got a, a nice young lady that has a big dermal nevus on her cheek, and uh, really wants to get rid of it. You uh, do the appropriate things, ask about history, is this bleeding changing? They say, no, 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 no. So then you're like, well, it's a benign mole. Insurance isn't gonna cover this sort of thing, so what are you gonna do? Um, she wants it gone, she wants to know how much it's gonna cost and if insurance is gonna cover it. So this uh, was an article that we reviewed um, in residency and I really, I liked a lot. I quote this a lot for some of my shave excision patients. They looked at lots and lots of different uh, patients with um, cosmetic lesion removal and uh, divided them into location um, and then looked at the complications that they had um, post-operatively. These were all uh, benign lesions, and uh, they did a variety of locations, some on the back, some on the face, some on the arms and legs, and um, then looked at postoperative uh, scar and evaluated that. The key things to take away from this are at three months, done correctly, 98% of the patients felt that the scar looked better than the procedure, or than the uh, same mole before the procedure. So if you can do it right and not leave them with a big divoted scar, I think people are really happy to have these things removed and they do exceedingly well, especially on the face, non-central areas of the face, I think there's, it's a no-brainer and everybody in this room should be able to do an excellent job with it 
done uh, once you figure that out. That's where these little double-edged razor blades really make a big difference because you can control the depth um, so well by bending that little flexible razor blade and just doing that little shave. Um, it really makes things um, nice. My typical spiel to the patients when I do something like this is, you know, this is a benign lesion. Insurance isn't going to cover this. I jump right to the cost because a lot of times they're thinking this is like major surgery, you know, I'm going to have to go to the OR for this, this is going to be plastic surgery, um, and this is going to cost me thousands of dollars. I'm like, no, you know, this takes me about five or ten minutes, and it'll probably cost you, it depends on how difficult I think they're going to be, I will say $200 if they're like, I just want to get rid of this and be done with it, or what's the scar going to look like, what, you know, am I, is it going to be red, am I going to have to do bandages, and then I'm like, ah, oh, that's going to be 400 actually, it's, you know, it, it's a sliding, excuse me, sliding scale based on my perceived, uh, 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 you know, post-operative complication rate. Um, so, and I mean, and people go for it. I mean, I think that's a legitimate reason. I can tell you within the first one minute if somebody's going to give me a lot of problems or if they're just, you know, happy to get, run, you know, like these old VA guys that, uh, you know, at the, at the veterans uh, hospital, they're just like, hey, doc, uh, thanks for removing half my nose. It looks great, doc, you know. Uh, you, know if, you know, those guys will do it for free, but... Uh, but then you got the, somebody that you know has a little spot behind the ear, and they're worried about the scar um, and how long it's going to take to heal. And you're just like, oh boy. Uh, so I, there's nothing wrong with that in my mind. It has a lot to do with how much work you're going to put into it, not only at the time but afterwards and follow-up visits and everything else. So I use that sliding scale quite a bit, and I go right to it. And a lot of times I'm amazed at when I you know say I don't really want to do one. Uh, I think the patient isn't going to be happy regardless of anything I can do. So I throw a, a number out, and they're like, oh, okay. And I'm just like, that's a lot higher. I, this was intended to, to scare you away from doing the procedure, <laughs> not, not have you just not bat an eye and throw the cash on the counter. Uh, so it usually works out very well, though. Um, especially on the face, you think about the more follicular structures that you've got, um, you know, lots and lots of fine little vellus hairs. That's where most of your wound healing is going to come back from, all of your stem cells, and the reepithelialization um, occurs much more quickly there. That really affects how, uh, how bad the scar is, and you can see that, uh, you know, at, uh, these are graded by dermatologists that weren't involved with the um, procedure. They graded, um, you know, better than to, you know, let's see, 90% of them, 92% uh, were either acceptable or excellent um, three months following the procedure. And the patients um, were even happier with it. Uh, let's see, we talked about the pitfalls, get right to the cost, don't be afraid to do it, because otherwise you'll piddle around with them and, and spend 15 or 20 minutes talking about the procedure, and then they'll say, ah, never mind, or yeah, that's fine. So just get right to it. Um, now, the thing you, you gotta be careful of, make sure you know what it is. I've, uh, I give this talk uh, in a cryotherapy type talk to the primary care providers. That's another one of my little pet peeves is when the primary guys start freezing stuff, you know, anything that moves, it's like they get a little liquid nitrogen in their hands and they start freezing every little thing. They don't know what it is. And, uh, you know, I've seen a few people freeze a melanoma for a few weeks or a few times each week. And then I'm like, you know, if you're not sure, don't freeze it. If you're not sure this is benign, send it into pathology and bill their insurance. I mean, I think that's a completely reasonable thing, and they'll be happy because they don't have to pay for it. Um, so, you know, if you send it into pathology, in my mind, you're not sure enough about the diagnosis and bill their insurance for it. Uh, let's see. All right. I buzzed right through that. Most of that information's in there. Now, I, uh, I like to talk about procedural things. So, 
here's a few other topics I had considered doing. Think about um, these sorts of things. Uh, I think these would be good uh, case-based um, discussions in the future. You know, which lesion needs MOS or not? Um, hypertrophic scars and keloids, scar revision, and then uh, bleeding and anticoagulants in derm, derm surgery. This is an area that's kind of near and dear to me. Um, one of my mentors um, really um, is vocal about this and I think has probably gained a few enemies in dermatology because he's so vocal about people not discontinuing their anticoagulants during derm surgery. Um, you know, you've got a guy with a recent stint and um, you know, a heart attack and he's basically alive because that stent is in place. He has a little basal cell on his back that you don't want to bleed. You know, he, uh, he wouldn't have him stop any of his anticoagulation and I think that's appropriate and absolutely correct because uh, you think about the, the consequences of a, a, a clot in the stent, I mean the guy's gonna die. And if, if he bleeds a little bit and gets a hematoma, the worst thing that's gonna happen is he gets a little infection, he has to come back. So be really careful about discontinuing your, your anticoagulants um, preoperatively. And I, we can talk a lot more about that um, in the future sometime. Atypical moles and suturing technique, I think that might be a good uh, topic um, to do the same sort of thing. And, and then um, organ transplant recipients and skin cancers also would be excellent. All right, questions? Comments, concerns, otherwise? Okay. Excellent. I have a question about yeah. um, the use of hyphricators in patients with pacemakers. Yeah. So it depends. Um, they have the the, the typical um, hyphricator, which is just a little wall-mounted unit that doesn't have the um, pad that you have to use separately, which is different than like Bovie units where you have the, the grounding plate. I tend to try to avoid them if I can, especially if they have a pacemaker plus defibrillator. Um, at Mayo, it was nice because there was a pacemaker nurse that would come by, turn off their pacemaker if they could, turn off their defibrillator while they could, and then immediately come back and turn it back on. I don't have those resources available in a, in a private practice office, so I end up using either those little heated cautery units, which don't work very well. Um, you know, it's thermal, it's not electric at all, and um, I use those sometimes. Occasionally, I've had to just use them. I turn it down to as low a setting as I can. I try and use the bipolar, um, you know, tweezer type forceps rather than the uh, um, probe um, or needle to stop it. I mean, that's my two cents worth. Uh, and I try to, and if you're gonna use the, uh, the grounding plate and the stronger Bovi units, I would say not, don't do that because it's too much current and it could cause problems. Does anybody else use anything differently? Okay, there you go, yeah. What medications do you recommend discontinuing prior to surgery as far as blood thinners and stuff? Um, if, if it's a preventative thing, um, I have them stop it. So if it's somebody that's never had a heart attack, never had a stroke, but they're doing it for prevention, I tell them to stop that. I tell them to stop that, I tell them to stop uh, fish oils and vitamin E and um, I mean, there's a few other herbal supplements. If they don't need it for 
um, you know, prophylaxis of an existing heart condition, then I'd say stop it. But, but if they're like on Plavix, they're coming in, you keep if, them on yeah, it? Yeah, I, I keep them on it. Now, if I check their INR, especially if I know I'm going to be doing a big um, repair right. on their face uh, and I want it to turn out nicely, I, I keep them on everything unless it's going to be something where I think the risk, the potential risk for complication, like say they've got something on the eyelid and I'm doing a big flap, occasionally I'll have them stop their Coumadin or talk to their doctor about it because I think the potential for a retroorbital hematoma where they could go blind because the blood bleeds behind and puts pressure on the optic nerve, that's a pretty devastating um, adverse event from bleeding. If it's just a flap on their neck or their back or they're doing a big melanoma excision, I keep them on it, but I do double check and make sure that their INR is you know, in a therapeutic range and not 17. Um, or that they're, you know, if they've had problems with low platelets, you know, I make sure that they're, you know, 30, 50, something, yeah. In regards to the cash cost for removing of a uh, perceived benign lesion, you mentioned yeah. something about uh, billing for the pathology but refunding the, if it comes back benign. Could you expound upon that? Sure. You know, I've heard this done. I don't actually do it because I think it gets too complicated. But the people that I've heard that have done that, um, there's a couple of plastic surgeons that I know that do that. Um, and basically, they tell the patient that they think it's benign, but they're not dermatologists by training, and they probably have a little bit more difficulty distinguishing clinically between a benign mole and an SK. I mean, I think. I've seen more excisions of SKs come from plastic surgeons than... Um, than anywhere else. Um, but if you're clinically, you know, if you're not sure clinically, then I think it goes into pathology. And I don't even bother mentioning that to them because if it's benign, I'm like, well, it was clinically suspicious and we were justified in doing the biopsy. It's reassuring that it's benign and you go on your way. Um, but I think they do that because they don't want to get dinged for removing too many benign lesions. Um, and I'm sure they've removed a lot more because their clinical acumen for distinguishing benign on the surface versus malignant isn't quite as good as dermatology in general. So what they do is remove it, tell the patient that I think this is benign. If it's benign, here's the cosmetic fee. We'll send it into pathology. If it's benign, you're gonna have to pay for that too. If it's not and it shows a typical mole, I'll refund you all the money and we'll bill insurance. But I think it just adds too many complicated steps and it's just easier just to lay it out and not, you know, if you're not sure, just send it in. Yep. Um, for the case with the facial nevus that you're talking about, would I'm you- I'm sorry, worry? I missed it. For the case with the facial, um, yeah. that you're talking about. Would you worry about the hair coming back? Because you said it had a hair with just the shave. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, that's something to think about. And I do mention that. That's a good question. Um, you know, you've got a big, hairy, congenital type mole that's, you know, kind of like uh, an iceberg to keep on the Titanic uh, theme. Uh, you know, you see some of it sticking above the water, but a lot of, it's, uh, a lot of it is buried, and you got, uh, you know, you don't want to gouge that thing out and leave them with a big divot. So you're going to stay on the surface. You're trying to stay pretty much flush with the skin. Um, in those situations, I usually will use a little bit of gentle cautery um, to kind of desiccate the base of it a little bit. I don't go too heavy. My goal is to not leave them with a scar. And if the hair comes back, you can always, and this is what I tell them too, you know, I almost always recommend shave if it's above the surface of the skin because you can always go back and, and excise the lesion and do an excellent job of stitching it up if you need to. Um, you know, that gets a little trickier as far as payment because you're going to charge a little bit more and insurance probably isn't going to cover it. But a little bit of gentle electrodesiccation at the base of a shaved, le shaved lesion usually takes care of that, you know, little uh, focus uh, that's kind of in the dermis that is, is the cause of the hair growth that's concerning. And if they come back and it comes back, I can always reshape it and cauterize a little heavier too. There's, there's lots of options. I like it though because you can leave 
all of your options on the table. You can always reshave it, you can always electrodesicate a little bit harder, or you can always excise it and stitch it back up nicely. I've seen um, some people use staged excision coating. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about when that would be appropriate? Sure. I have used that in a few instances. Um, one is, uh, I guess this gets a little tricky too. It was a large congenital mole on the temple of a grade school aged kid. Obviously, I don't want to remove the entire temple. It's going to be a you know, pretty um, nasty looking scar. So the way that I would do, let me find if I can get to a slide, there's a picture and I can point. All right, so say this is um, you know, taking up the entire temple. Rather than excise the whole thing and leave yourself with a scar that's any time you're doing a repair, you want to get these apices at about a 30 degree angle. So that's going to lead you to a three to one ratio for the most part. So a scar that's three times as long as a lesion and wide. I don't have 12 centimeters to work with on a, on a five-year-old's face. So um, you know, they want this thing gone. Maybe it looks a little bit funny. Maybe it showed some atypical features and they're worried about it. A staged excision. So rather than excising the entire lesion each time, you can and basically shrink this down and excise one third of it. So your scar isn't any longer than the lesion itself. And you basically do that mm, six, eight weeks apart. There's no set time frame, but it allows that skin to heal. You get a little bit of stretch and then you can separate it over three times. For that, you, um, I mean, basically build an excision enclosure for, for each time. It's just gonna be smaller and repeat it over three times. Now, if it's not atypical after that first um, excision, um, it gets a little bit difficult sometimes whether insurance is going to cover that. And I, uh, I haven't actually had the, everyone that I've done has shown some atypia, so I've been justified in going back and doing a staged excision and, and minimizing the scarring. Um, but insurance is going to get a little feisty if you start doing that for big benign um, moles. But it really can be a quite effective uh, technique. The other thing that you can do sometimes, rather than excise a portion like that and then do that three times, you can excise a, a, the center portion and then do a purse string closure and, and cinch it down a little bit, and that'll decrease the size. And you just wait six, eight weeks, and you can repeat it. But yeah, that's a good question. Staged excisions get a little complicated. Anything else? All right, take a look at that at home. Hopefully it gives you guys some tips that are um, useful uh, in um, your practice. Thanks.